You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Yes, hello, Jordan. How are you? Yeah, going really well, actually. Pretty geared up for what's going to be my first week of teaching. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's really nice. Yeah, and I'll have to see how how things go in in continuing my presence here. Um, But I'll still be a big part of it, absolutely, because I'm still a member of my union and um, happy to contribute always. So, yeah. Fantastic. We'll see how things go. Yeah, that would be great. Mm. We would we look forward to your future contributions Absolutely. on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR. Mm. We've enjoyed immensely having you in the studio and there's been lots of positive feedback about your performance. So there you go. Well, that's very flattering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really I'm I'm only here because I, because I love it as with all volunteering. So, yeah. yeah. Um well, uh, on Solidarity Breakfast this morning, we've got a variety of things. Um upcoming is a couple of speeches around May Day which uh reflected the uh, uh broad church that was brought to May Day celebrations and uh issues uh, that different people wanted to present to uh, as part of the cauldron of working class conversation. So uh, we're going to hear from John Montero yep. about WikiLeaks. Yep. So Joe Montero is from Melbourne for WikiLeaks, which has um, obviously been uh, we, we, we've talked about Assange a lot on Solidarity Breakfast, but it really reinforces why it is union business. So that's really important. Um, and then we've got um, Xin Yi Mong. I hope I pronounced that right. Um, she is from the um, Myanmar Victoria Youth. So, well, the Myanmar. Sorry, I haven't got the sheet in front of me, but it's um, a uh, Myanmar youth organization within Victoria. And she says some really powerful stuff about what's actually happening on the ground there. And it is still very much ongoing, especially as strikes complexify and the junta's response. Complexify. And so does the junta's response as well. So, oh, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I presume that the junta is thinking that uh, if they just uh, hold their breath for long, enough, then uh, the uh, people will uh, um, become too weary or their economic state will become too porous. But uh, that's pretty grim sort of uh, an analysis for a whole country that's Mm. being um, held in the grip of uh, a military junta that has been sucking the marrow out of the country for years. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We're going to talk to Sue McKinnon later uh, from the... uh, well, she's actually from the civil disobedience 
which is a fantastic idea. We'll have to mm-hmm. ask her about it. They're from Extinction Rebellion, They're, and uh, they are going to be joined by the Cl- uh, Climate Choir at a rally on the corner of Melba Highway and King Lake Hillsville Road on Monday. And uh, uh, this is uh, about raising awareness of, uh, about the uh, logging of Tulangi State Forest mm. and also in sympathy with the uh, p- people in East Gippsland who are defending the Yirrinundra, uh forests at this very moment. So we're going to have a yarn with uh, Sue McKinnon about that, hopefully at around 8 or a little bit after. Uh, Duncan Graham from Over the Wall has uh, given submitted a part one of um, an analysis of the upcoming budget, which is uh, fantastic. Mm. Good on you, Duncan. Uh, this is the week that was. Yep, of course. And then you're going to tell us about. Yeah, so I've I've been um, trying to get a scoop on the um, Australian Education Union's um, EBA negotiations, which are upcoming, and um, they've got some big demands, and we'll have to have a chat about it because it is it's a complex list, but I'm more than happy to unpack it. Oh, fantastic! And mm. after that, we're going to hear from Dr. Alison Blini. Uh, this is a, a, a continuation of the discussion that we started a couple of weeks ago about the regulation of chemicals in our food and environment in general. And she's a general practitioner from down in Tasmania, and she's got a few things to say about a submission that she made to a recent investigation uh, into what in some ways looks like the non-regulation of uh, chemicals in our environment Mm. and uh, our uh, our food source system. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. Smartphone Stories is a fun, free workshop for anyone in the community who would like to make a film using just their smartphone. We're coming to the city of Yarra at the Bagunga Nanin North Fitzroy Library on Monday the 3rd and Monday the 10th of May. You can register for a place at www.smartphonestories.com. Proudly supported by Vic Health. It's time to speak up, speak out and speak loud. From an idea born on a park bench outside Liberal Party headquarters where hundreds of women told their stories of sexual violence, introducing Feminist Fridays. Join our open speaking circle to tell your story any way you want. A poem, a speech or a dance. You can even yell it out in the direction of Parliament House because that's where we'll be, on the steps. Feminist Fridays, starting Friday the 30th of April at 12pm. Join us. It's time to unite, heal and take back our power. Feminist Fridays isn't just a protest. We are a non-hierarchical collective ready to destroy the patriarchy, starting with your voice. This event is taking place on stolen Wurundjeri land and voices of First Nations people are prioritised. Hosted by Loud, Angry and Not Sorry. A 3CR supporter. There was a strong contingent of uh, people raising awareness about WikiLeaks on um, May the 1st and May the 2nd. Um, actually, there was uh, people talking about the ABC too, the crushing of the ABC. Absolutely interrelated. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so we'll let's hear what uh, John uh, Joe Montero had to say. He's from uh, Melbourne for WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Where do I start? 
I suppose, first of all, that WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, the process that led to the creation of WikiLeaks, actually began here at Trades Hall, Victorian Trades Hall Council. So he and the people around him are one of us, or a group of us. So that alone is reason, of course, for a little bit of thought. But before going on what it means and what's happening to him, I just want to briefly mention uh, the massive propaganda effort, the lies that have been put out over the last 14 or so years. And they were designed to cut away the base of support for Julian Assange in particular, but also for WikiLeaks. And this is the allegations that came out of Sweden. So day in, day out, it was put out that Julian Assange is a sexual predator. The evidence has come out this was a setup from beginning to finish. And it got to the point where the Swedish authorities had no case, they had to give it up. That's not what it was about. Matter of fact, Julian was quite prepared to talk and talk with the police, anyone else, about the allegations. But at the end of the day, when he was in London and he got the OK from the Swedish authorities to go there, he was tipped off that there was an arrangement between the Swedish government and the government of the United States to extradite him from Sweden, not to face charges in Sweden. So he didn't go, he ended up at the Ecuadorian embassy. The problem has been for a while that the lies have affected many of us, many within our circle, who started saying, we shouldn't be supporting that bloke, he's a sexual predator. Right, there were other things that were said about him. He's mad and he's this and he's that, right? All this stuff was carefully calculated. And I'll tell you who was at the centre of it, Rupert Murdoch. And one thing which I suggest, I plead everyone, is while we attack the monopoly control Rupert Murdoch, let's not believe what the rubbish that's printed by his media empire. So, having said that, why was Julian Assange attacked? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is he and WikiLeaks exposed the level of corruption in country after country, including the United States, UK and Australia, including Venezuela before, what was going on there, and many other countries that involved the big owners of big corporations, politicians, high-ranking officials, military people. The millions of documents that came out were evidence that all this was going on, let alone the scale of tax dodging. So these are very powerful people. They're the people who are in control of things. And he stood on their toes and they were determined to shut him up. And they still are. So that's what's going on there. 
But it's also more than this. Because particularly in the United States, the dominant power since World War II, controlling the economies of nations, the global economy set up through Bretton Woods, the World Bank, the IMF and the other institutions to control the financial system on a global scale. It's starting to unravel. The engine's starting to run out of steam. And they are desperate to claw back to where they think they should be in control of everything. And part of this effort to regain and consolidate their control is an attack on democratic rights in country after country, including Australia. It is no accident that we have a government that has, over the years, systematically whittled down rights that we took for granted, that those before us won through their efforts. Some of these are, of course, the right to take away the right to produce innocent until proven guilty, the right to due process, the right to have proper legal representation, the right when you're in court to cross-examine witnesses. The anti-terrorist laws in Australia deny these rights. There are people now in jail largely because they've been denied due process. Guantanamo Bay in the United States, we know what happened there. It was even worse. The United States has also set about a process and they're saying this, they're quite open about it, that American law should be the law of the world. In other words, if they don't like you and you do something according to their statutes, in Australia, could be in Alaska, you could be in Antarctica, that you are liable to be arrested and drag over to the United States for trial. That's what they want to cement in. And this is a test case for that. Of course, this international American law doesn't apply to them, though. It applies to everyone else. They want to shut the voice of independent journalists who do investigative journalism. There's less and less, if you notice, there's less and less each year of that. Right? They want to shut all of us up. There are, I'm not going to go through all of them. Industrial laws that have been put up are connected to this as well. Because the bottom line is always behind everything that's going on. This is why, as well, Julian Assange is being persecuted. Our government... In terms, first of all, let's consider the United States has put in, put in an application for extradition to the United States to face a set of charges for treason amounted to 175 years imprisonment. He's not a citizen of the United States. The Australian government should have, one would assume, a responsibility to look after Australian citizens. 
especially when some basic rights are being denied. But no, they jump in and attack him instead. The good thing is there are a group of members of parliament, cross-party, of, you know, of all the parties, who say this is wrong and are actually campaigning for this to be changed, for Julian to be allowed free. This is important and it's happening around the world as well. A movement is building around the world. It's getting past now the lies that were put up over those years. But it's also a movement that needs to grow in Australia because we're important to it. So I said before, he's from here, he's from Melbourne. He has a right to come home. He has a right, like all of us, to be with his family. But more than that, Julian Assange has provided a service to the world, to all of us, which few can equal. He should be regarded as a national hero. And mark my words, he will be eventually. What's going on right now? Not a great deal because on January the 6th, the court uh, in the United States, a sort of court, was held, one which was pretty set up and all these restrictions were there. He couldn't consult properly with his lawyers, he was, you know, cross-examination was limited, except the other side could do what they liked. And the judge agreed with them all the time, even before they said it. But public opinion around the world rose to the extent where they wanted a temporary escape. So they used an excuse about the state of his health, that he could commit suicide or something. And it was a time, a time by an exercise because they were also waiting for the presidential elections there. Joe Biden became the president, as we all know, and quickly continued on the same policy. There's been no change with a change of administration in Washington. They have lodged an appeal. They're hoping Julian will get sicker and sicker and they can drag it along, out long enough. He will die. He is still two years for no crime. He's been locked up in Belmarsh Prison, spending 21 hours a day over two years, for two whole years, in solitary confinement. Nils Melser, the rapporteur of the United Nations, investigated the case, called this, and he's had some experience around the world, the worst case, the most disturbing case of torture he's ever seen. Not only because of Julian Assange, but the implications. So we need to stand up for Julian, because if we don't, we're not only letting him down and WikiLeaks down, we're letting ourselves down. Because if they get away with what they're doing to him, we're next. Thank you. Yo, peace. This is Rod Stars. What up? This is G1. This is DJ Illinois. And together we are Rebel, Rebel Diaz. Diaz. And whenever we are here, we listen to 8.55 a.m. 
3CRD Digital, 3CR.org.au. You already know what it is. Free Radical Radio, let's go. 3CR. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. So that was one of the issues that was brought up during uh, the May Day uh, weekend, but Mm -hmm. also uh, there was uh, um, voices from uh, people who are in uh, actual... uh, battle at the moment yes uh, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah well obviously there's there's many battles ongoing um and the um victorian myanmar youth has been particularly um vocal as of late um especially because as i mentioned earlier the strikes are complexifying and the this is largely because there has been a shift towards the general strikes taking up more of a proportion of existing strikes in myanmar than um than than what was just initially a response against a government crackdown um that is to say that the economic implications of this uh revolution are actually coming back to bite the community and um Shinyi Mong came down to Trades Hall on the 28th of May to um share her story and have a chat about it Hello everyone First of all, I would like to say thank you for giving me a chance to come and speak here tonight. I'm Shin, and I'm representing Myanmar, my country, as a member of Victorian, uh, as a member of Victorian Myanmar Youth Society. Um, you guys must have seen on the news about the political issues happening in our country. It's really horrible. And um, as a Myanmar citizen, the 1st of February 2021 was the day Yep. Uh, our dreams and hopes become like uncertain because of the military intervention. Military has seized the control from our elected government, which is the total res- disrespect of our votes. And uh, the fact that the military is uh, back in charge and then declared a year-long um, state of the emergency is the total nightmare for us. We have lived under their control and their surplus for more than 50 years, and we lost our rights and like, our economy status and then the social standards of the citizens has been like downfall within these years under their control. And the uh, ethnic minorities has been surplus, and uh, now the military is trying to control us back again, in this way again. There has been an inequality in education and economies. Some Youths from the rural areas, uh, our ethnic groups, our ethnic youths cannot get the education. While the children of the military people are studying in the world top-ranked universities, and um, 
they're living, working, and studying very well. And um, like many youths from the ethnic minority groups have to access their education from the monastery or the IDB camps, not like they use from Australia and even like us. And um, as of today, more than 700 people were killed by the military. Um, they are total terrorists, of course. Um, most of them are youth under 25 years old just because of their protesting peacefully, unarmed, they were killed by these terrorists. Like, as of today, the protester, the youth protester are detained by the military junta, and uh, we still don't know some, some of these students' location. And these are the future of our country. These are the youths like us. Since February, there were many protests with the seas of people in every region of our country, Myanmar, and, uh, and yes, like the youths like us, we are even protesting in other countries like in Australia. Protesters included like teachers, lawyers, and workers like you guys. Um, and um, there is a movement which is a civil disobedient movement. And it's the only way to counterattack the illegitimate government, the military. Thousands of protesters have been arrested, tortured, and some were even killed because of their brutal acts, the military's brutal acts in the jail. The death toll has been passed 700 and thousands and thousands of uh, protesters, including young, even the young children and the female youth protesters, and then even the pregnant ladies were killed. The media has been suppressed and at least 38 journalists have been detained just because they're writing about this military detectorship. We as the Myanmar citizens can only rely on the social media to spread the news, spread these brutal acts and the information, but they block the civilian access to the social media and um, the national media has um, telling the propagandas and the fake news and false news to the international. Myanmar is battling against these terrorist militant body, which we call Tamador, the military, that claims to have the absolute power. It's the concerning at large on the international scale because it can even simplify as the tap of the nation. They detained the elected president and other parliamentary member on the day 1st of February. And following that day, the civilian bodies expressed their anger for disrespecting their votes. Like us, we, we're angry, of course. Just by simply, they just uh, expressed their feelings by simply hitting and banging pots and pans because they are unarmed. They have no weapons like military. They only have pots and pans to express their feelings. And um, a few days later, the military and the police body started using shotguns, snipers, and even the battle tanks across the major cities. Even in, my, even in the city I was born, Yangon. That is where massive brutal crackdown, and um, it has been more than um, 700 bodies, dead bodies were confirmed. We don't know how many unconfirmed dead bodies has been there. 
However, the state-run channels are injecting propaganda, as I said before, and lies to the local body when almost entire nation is battling for this fight, for their better future, and for the democracy. We just want the democracy. And uh, the commercial flights are closed off at the airport during the political unrest, along with the major banks and other businesses are also shut down, even the businesses of our family. And there's no way anybody in Myanmar leave the country with the flights unless it's under cameras, the military supervision. So if they are trying to leave the country, we can ensure that they will be ar like arrested, detained, and put, like somebody can be put into the jail for sure. Like um, we hope the Australian government can work with the major allies, like the like U.S., Japan, and India helping restore the democracy back in our country, Myanmar. However, through the eyes of an international community, this is a case of an internal affair. But actually, it is not. There should be a collective action. Unless the, the collective action is taken, this will just be repeating the catchphrase, and we're deeply concerned over and over again. And um, put, like, what can we do is putting pressure on the banks and like there are temp the military related federal reserves in Singapore estimating 5.7 billion US dollars. It's a lot. Is that, if that money goes to Tamaro, like who knows what will happen? More bullets, more black shirts, and um, more ad advanced technology to civilians, us. Australia can support international students who are currently here. And um, I feel really sorry, sorry for the student protesters, the student bodies back there, because where most ideas flourish and blossom from them, they, they're youths. And it's heartbreaking to see the, these young protesters of our age, of my age, die for the merely protesting. They have nothing, but that's why we want the people to people in Australia to be aware of the atrocities taking place in the streets, in their homes, and in the neighborhoods back in Myanmar. The use of the snipers and uh, the shotguns, the machine guns, are largely concerning because this showed that the military treated the issues as as if. We are the their army, and as if there's an actual war taking place. In fact, the civilian body has got nothing but a dying fate to live in a more colorful future. On the 2nd of May, there will be a global Myanmar Spring Revolution campaign, and we as Melbournians, Victorian Myanmar youth, will co-organize a protest against the military coup on the 1st of May. And uh, please support. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Please support us, the Myanmar civilians, to get our freedom and our democracy back. And yes, please participate in our upcoming campaigns and rallies and the movement, please. This is the three finger salute as a symbol of defense. And please let me finish by my. 
finish my speech with the phrase, revolution must win. Thank you. Conditions, they are bad, and some of you are sad. You cannot see your enemy, the class that lives in luxury. You working men are poor, will be forevermore. As long as you permit the few to guide your destiny, shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous, has been for ages. This earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty. The master class is small, but they have lots of gall. When we unite to gain our right, if they resist, we'll use our might. There is no middle ground. This fight must be one round to victory for liberty. Our class is marching on. Shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous, has been for ages. This earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty. Unite, we must put up a fight to make us free from slavery and capitalistic tyranny. This fight is not in vain. We've got a world to gain. Will you be a fool, a capitalist tool, and serve your enemy? Shall we still be slaves and work for wages? It is outrageous, has been for ages. This earth by right belongs to toilers and not to spoilers of liberty. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, we have got Sue McKinnon on the line. G'day, Sue. How are you? Hey, Sue. Hi, Annie and Jordan. Yeah. Good to be here. Good yeah, to chat with you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, um, I'm particularly interested in what the symbol of dis- disobedience are. Tell us about what's going on. Uh, <laughs> the civil disobedience are... Um, they're the people that are dressed in um, this most stunning um, costume, they depict the sibyls of, of ancient Greece who were um, hermits. They were single women that lived on their own um, and people went to them for prophecy. Uh, so the Extinction Rebellion movement have... Um, have sort of re- recalled that memory of, of those people and um, they're, they're, they've created a group, um, well, a, 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 I don't know, a, a theatre, um, which is which is the civil disobedience people who dress in costume and um, group together to to face the you know the climate emergency that we have with calmness and quietness. They um, they move slowly. They have signs on their costume, um, and I, I think sort of it, in the crisis that we're in, I think they they sort of enable us to focus um, without panic. 
um, and, and to, to, to enable us to act. Yeah, doing mm. doing nothing risks everything. Act now. That's mm. yeah. That's one of the signs on on one of the costumes that I saw, and I, that that really struck home to me. And um, another one was extinction or rebellion, and that's what we're facing. Mm. And um, they must be com- uh, particularly compelling in the. Uh, uh, setting that's uh, going to be the setting for the rally on um, Monday, which is the corner of Melbourne Highway and King Lake Hillsville Road, um, because it's in the Tulangi State Forest, isn't it? Yes. Well, they're going to be stunning there, but what we're doing is we'll we'll rally there for a, an hour, and then we're going to convoy just a few kilometres up the road, park there. Um, in the forest, hmm. and we're going to go f- um, walk about a kilometre and a half up along the road, and it's it's it, it will be a very interesting walk. That the Sibyls do look. We've had them there before, and that's where you saw the photo on the on the rally poster. Um, the Sibyls are dressed in sort of blue and white and um, and red, um, very bright colours, and. The forest there is wet forest, so it has a lot of that vibrant, uh, limey green ferns. And the colours are just stunning. It looks great. Um, so we'll go, um, we'll be marching along the, the forest road um, from about 11.30. Um, where we park, where we're intending to park is at a site that has been logged um, so people can see what... The, the forest looks like after it's logged. We'll walk up through some beautiful mixed species um, forest that sort of eucalypts, not just one species. You can either get mountain ash up there, which is a pure stand, or you can get areas that have different eucalypts. And so we'll be walking up through um, the mixed species. We'll be driving through mountain ash. Um, and um, and then we'll get to the area that they're going, they're, they're logging now. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, was, no, no, no. I was just uh, saying that was that was very interesting. Uh, did you want to? Oh no! Up? What I was yeah. going to say was you can almost smell the beautiful forest as you describe it. Actually, mm. and, and it reminds me of. Um, uh, I mean, obviously, East Gippsland is very far outwards into the northeast of Victoria. Um, I've got. I love, absolutely love the scenery. Um, when I used to travel down to the Snowy Mountains, as I used to live in Canberra. So Jindabyne was a pretty regular sort of holiday destination, and I really connected with Kosciuszko National Park. Um, I'm kind of curious, do you connect much with um, XR groups across the other side of the border in New South Wales, or is it mostly more of a a local organisation as opposed to uh, big state groups meeting up with each other and organising big events? Well... um... My connection is mainly with forest campaigners. Like I'm um, in King Lake, Friends of the Forest, mm. and we connect very. We've we've been connecting for ten years um, with different forest campaigners all over Australia. Um, now the forest campaign groups are connecting with XR groups, and and a lot of people are in both. Mm. And and I think that is you know is something that's that's sort of happening over the last year or so. So what you're saying... this this rally on on Monday will be, you know, forest campaign groups and XR groups. Yeah, so what you're saying is that uh, you're part of um, King Lake Friends of the Forest 
And yep. uh, so that means that the strength of these uh, uh, defending um, actions is that you understand that local area and you are protecting your local area, aren't you? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, personally, I feel um, very connected to all of Victorian forest. And, um, you know, whenever I go into another state, um, I, I just feel connected to forest. I, I don't really have that sort of boundary that, that one, one patch is, is more mine than another. Um, I mean, none of it's mine. But, um, you know, you can only reach. You can, you can, you can show, um, you can sort of perhaps make more of an impact where you can physically be. And, yeah, and yeah. Where you can go and survey and where you can stand and hold signs and um, speak to a local member. And, um, you know, I think the locals have... A, more power um, than, you know, coming in from another area. Yeah, well, it's interesting because really what you're talking about is the announcement that was made in uh, before pre-COVID that uh, the Victorian government stood up and said that uh, it was going to stop a native forest logging and under the auspices of Vic Forests, right? Except that, of course, uh, they uh, weren't very loud about saying that it was going to be in 2030. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> loud about one thing, not the other thing. So in two, 2030, the contract for um, to, to supply wood to the paper, paper mill in the Latrobe Valley in Maryvale, um, is finishing. So most of the logging is to do with supplying that paper mill. Um, so it was finishing in 2030 anyway. Um, uh, there's, there's very few saw logs in the forest because um, they're just, uh, they're all gone. So, um, you know, 80%, over 80%, 85% of what is cut down in the forest goes immediately to the um, the paper mill. No, it's really well, well, it goes to the paper mill one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, yeah. It's, so it's that pretty... makes paper or cardboard. Yeah, it it, it smacks of um, gross disrespect. You know, this, this is not this is uh, look. Obviously, all logging is bad, but it's not it's not wood that's seeking to be preserved or or conserved in any respectful fashion. It is just being pulped, which is very disappointing to me. Um, and also, it's so easy to replace with plantation wood. Precisely, because plantation wood, you know, is is a better quality for for wood pulp anyway. I mean, we grow so much plantation pulp wood in Victoria. The pulp wood is quickly grown. Um, it doesn't take a lot of um, work. It's not like growing saw log plantations. That's you know, you have to trim your trees as it grows. We grow we we grow so much plantation wood in Victoria, it, well in Australia, that we export six million tons every year. Hmm. So we can easily hmm. turn around, you know, stop some of that export, and 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 ship it to you know uh, truck it to Maryvale to replace the native forest that we cut down. Well said. Easily, I mean, most of that wood, that plantation wood, is in Victoria anyway, so it's not even. A hard ask. It's such a, a you know, a, a low-growing fruit to to stop the native forest. 
Have you had any positive reaction regarding um, the actions of, uh, well, because it's a considerable amount of people who are involving themselves in this demonstration on Monday. So you've got the King Lake Friends of the Forest, Protect Warburton Rangers, Echo Shout, Melbourne Climate Choir, Knitting Nanas of Telangi, Extinction Rebellion, Port Phillip, right? So it's not like... I mean, this is quite a few people who are actually sh- making a shout about this particular strand of forest. Uh, are you getting any uh, reactions uh, about this uh, uh, call for a change of action? Not from the government, no. No, we're just getting a lot of community um, interest. Uh, this has been going for for five weeks now. And um, you know, community community is also as as well as you know doing this this rally. Uh, community has gone in there and stopped the logging at various times where they're actually logging. Um, uh, you know, this is the kind of direct action that is is just so um, I don't know new to to people out here. We we just you know people we're in regional towns. We um, you know we're not sort of standing beside marches and things that go through the city all the time. This is this is extreme action and this is to the point that's the point where we've got to out here. And um, you know, this is this is an area that was burnt. It, we were surrounded in fire in two thousand and nine. Except for Telangi. Now Telangi was the green hole in the donut. It was it was wet forest and it didn't burn. So the loggers moved in there before the people were even allowed back in the town. Oh my gosh. And so that's why we're so connected with Erinundra because we're, we're uh, a lot of us feel that we want to be up there in Erinundra because we know their pain. They're surrounded in black forest. I've got this one small area of refuge in the Erinundra plateau, and and the loggers are moving in. It's it's so cruel, it's so disrespectful to the forest and the wildlife, but also the community that's in pain. And but it's such a long way out there. So we wanted to do this this um, protest and rally in solidarity with the community that is camped and blockading in Erinundra now. So tell us, tell our listeners where and when uh, the rally. Um, it's it's ten a.m. on Monday the tenth. So that's next Monday. We'll meet at corner of Melba Highway and King Lake Hillsville Road. Um, we'll stay there for about an hour, then we'll convoy on to um, into the Telangi Forest and we'll march up there. The march, the whole rally and march will finish about 2pm. And um, yeah, it's, um, it, it's going to be sensational, um, vibrant and um, we really look forward to seeing people out in the forest and, and I think I think they'll have a great time. Um, we'll have Melbourne Climate Choir singing um, and, and music that will be appropriate to the beautiful movement and theatre of the Sibyls. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be great. Thanks, Sue. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR, 855am, the voice of the community. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today... We begin our annual federal budget analysis with a prepper. What's likely to be announced next Tuesday? What's already known? And which cans will be kicked down the road into future years?
Next Tuesday, Josh Frydenberg will hand down the 2021 federal budget. After that, Over the Wall plans to give you two weeks of analysis and repercussions. This week, I'll look at what's already been announced, what is likely, what's not, and things to watch out for. We'll also look at the budget bottom line going into next Tuesday, and the fiscal and monetary machinery that shapes that. Let's begin there. The COVID emergency and the fight against a COVID recession cost the government a few hundred billion dollars last year. The government decided it had to go into record deficit to fund all that, and as usual, issued hundreds of billions of dollars worth of bonds to finance it. In essence, these bonds are loan requests. They come in four main flavours, with three-year, five-year, seven-year and ten-year maturities. When an investor buys a bond off the government, let's say a three-year bond, he, she or it offers to give the government a loan of let's say a thousand bucks. Annually or biannually, the government will send back an interest payment. And then, on maturity, after three years, the government will buy back the bond with a repayment to the investor of the thousand dollar principal. In practice, the bond buying investors are chiefly banks, super funds and foreign investors and the bonds are sold by Treasury at weekly auctions which determine what the interest rate will be. This is called the primary market. Well, for the first time last year, Australia set up a secondary market to engage in that most modern of fiscal ideas known as quantitative easing. Here's how it works. After the primary market in bonds has done its job, the Reserve Bank steps in and has its own auction. It wants to buy a whole lot of these government bonds back from those primary investors sending out a little more interest in the process. The Reserve Bank then hangs on to these bonds until maturity when it knocks on the Treasury's door and says, pay up buddy. The quantitative easing part of the magic is that the money the Reserve Bank uses to fund the bond purchases is what's known as fiat money. Or to put it another way, money created digitally out of thin air in an instant. Quantitative easing, or QE, was first innovated by the Japanese government 20 years ago and was picked up in a big way by the United States and Europe in particular to deal with the 2008 credit crunch. China has managed to avoid it completely. So Australia came to QE quite late. So why use QE at all? First off, having the Reserve Bank as a backstop for primary investors helps motivate bond buying in the first place and ensures the budget deficit can be financed. Secondly, Siphoning off bond investment from banks and investors loads those businesses with billions of dollars of funds that they can lend out to the private economy, creating stimulus. Thirdly, by allowing the Reserve Bank to vary the mix of bond flavours between short and long term, the danger of recession-making inverted bond yields, for example, can be calmed down, and the future of Treasury exposure to the timing of its repayments can be managed better. Fourthly, As used overseas after the 2008 credit crunch, the monetary machinery of central banks had been exhausted as soon as interest rates were reduced to near zero, and the leap to fiscal policy via QE was the only lever they had to pull. This happened in Australia early last year when the Reserve dropped the rate to 0.1%. It's worth pointing out that over the last 12 months, QE has racked up almost $200 billion of bond purchases, a considerable amount of which will mature by 2024 or 2025 when the government will have to repay it to the Reserve Bank. And that's outside of a large bond pool that still sits in the hands of primary investors. 
It's also worth pointing out that many economists expect the reserve to pull back on QE in the second half of this year and to take up only about half of the extra $100 billion allowed for that period. Whilst the federal budget is unlikely to explicitly refer to the reserve's QE policy, look for any between-the-lines hints on whether the government supports this. So, are there dangers in QE? Sure are. Since its take-up in Japan, government gross debt has risen to 250% of GDP there. Since its take-up in the US about eight years later, gross debt to GDP has hit 130%. Australia still sits well at a tick over 60%, but we've only just begun. If the US is a model, you can see that QE is a gateway drug. They've had three main tranches and recently upped their exposure from $4 trillion to $6 trillion. There's always a temptation to roll over government debt from the maturation of previously issued bonds with a fresh wave of QE, especially if a new financial crisis looms at the wrong time. Connected with this is the rising argument emanating from Bill Mitchell of Newcastle in New South Wales, which is called Modern Monetary Theory. This theory wants the central banks to play in the primary bond market directly, essentially underwriting government debt entirely by fiat money, and it's gaining attention worldwide. It may be just a matter of time before one government or another leaps in. To come back a little to the day-to-day -day world, let's look at how all this has impacted the housing market. QE meant that the banks, by early this year, had great gobs of money to send out the front door as cheap loans, with about 2% interest attached, mostly on a three-year fixed rate. At the same time as QE began, the government temporarily relaxed the prudential requirement they had brought in as a result of the Banking Royal Commission. This has meant that banks can lend to borrowers who otherwise would not have met the new requirements in terms of deposits, wages and the like. And on top of that, there's been stimulus to renovate and increase savings due to less discretionary spending on travel and leisure. So the housing bubble has broken out anew. The capital city markets have risen to a level not seen since the Howard days. Auction clearances are above 90%. Median housing prices in Sydney are approaching $1 million dollars and banks are reporting not only loan applications outstripping their ability to process them, but significant numbers of buyers signing house purchases before they have pre-approval for the loan. This may be a short-term bubble ahead of the re-imposition of prudential regulation on July 1st and the projected winding back of QE in the second half of the year, but time will tell. Look in next week's budget for how the government sees this playing out whether the dangers of a bubble with a lot of over-leveraged players is understood and how the government chooses to respond. Whilst the housing and building markets go gangbusters, some industries are still struggling. Hospitality, offline retail and tourism are all still catching up. Let's see if there's anything to target them. There's some good news to be had for sure. The budget bottom line for this year looks to sit on a $167 billion deficit which is $31 billion less than projected. Why? As I and others predicted, iron ore remained high and brought in about $4 billion in taxes. JobKeeper cost a little less than projected. The post-JobKeeper cliff was less of a problem than projected. Even JobMaker helped out. JobMaker? Yes, you may remember it. In November it was announced. A plan to part-subsidise 450,000 new jobs to young unemployed. Within weeks, Treasury changed that projection to 45,000 jobs, 
By March, only 609 jobs had been created. This week, the government abandoned the plan completely after only 1,100 jobs were created at a cost of less than $2 billion of a projected $4 billion. No way around it, it was a fizzer. Defeated, according to the CEO of the Australian Hotels Association, by a confusing and onerous bunch of regulation and paperwork that was required. So, next week, will Josh Frydenberg announce any new initiatives on youth employment? Let's hope so. On jobs in general, there has overall been a better than expected bounce back, and the Treasurer has largely lined up with Philip Lowe at the Reserve, who wants to see unemployment at between 3.8% to 4.8% before launching into fiscal repair and rate climbs. So the new government target has dropped 1% to 4.8%. The problem is that the government have a plan on how to get there. As demonstrated with the instant asset write-off last year, the new increases to childcare rebates coming soon and the jobmaker debacle, the government has repeatedly sought to load up the supply side with money without looking at demand factors. So, for example, how to impel companies with asset write-offs to employ more, how to stop childcare providers increasing fees to leapfrog rebates, how to open up jobs to these mothers newly available to the workplace, how to create youth jobs to soak up those subsidies. These sorts of problems have been a blind spot to the government for several years now. Let's hope they are finally addressed. Aged care continues as a problem, specifically the funding bottlenecks for home care packages. My fingers are crossed that the government starts to come to grips with it. To finish up, let's look at a few things that are likely to get kicked into the long grass, to be dealt with by future budgets or even future governments. Income tax. The low and middle income tax offset, nicknamed the Lamington, which was supposed to disappear in July, has been extended for another year. However, the great flattening of the tax schedule where all income between about $40,000 a year and $200,000 a year will attract the same marginal rate is still due to take effect in mid-2024. However dubious that was when it was first planned years ago, it comes now with new dangers. The US and the UK are both looking to up their corporate and income tax scale soon and are looking to build a coalition of agreement on tax hikes across the OECD. Australia will be decidedly on a different track. The year that Australia seeks to reduce tax, 2024, is the same year that those government bonds issued last year start to hit majority, beginning with the three-year bonds that the Reserve Bank first targeted and cycling into the five-year bonds. So, at the same time as tax revenue will fall significantly, hundreds of billions of dollars of liabilities will land on Treasury's doorstep. This won't be mentioned next Tuesday, but in coming years, this will become an awkward problem for whoever is in government, leading God knows where. That's it for now. Tune in next Saturday for our analysis of the actual budget. All the winners and losers, the brickbats and the bouquets. when the pot calling the kettle award to Admiral Michael Rogers, a U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, former National Security Agency director, 
who said misinformation is one of the greatest threats to democratic governments. Let's say that again. A US trained killer, former director of a security agency, says misinformation is one of the greatest threats to democratic government. The US OB, do they, do they ever listen to themselves? I'm sure the people of Chile circa 1973 would find that interesting, as would governments undermined around the globe, people saved by send in the marines around the world. But the good admiral says Russia, evil Russia, is the best there is at misinformation and disinformation. It's a wonder poor innocent US OB knows that such underhand methods exist. Let's just say it one more time. The US OB says misinformation is the greatest threat to democracy. Trained killer Roger, your pot calling the kettle award is on its way. The bury your head in the sand bracket somebody else's award to stand toss it over there for this brilliant idea for lowering its carbon footprint on gas projects in northern Trublawazi. Scuttle Devon Fossils Minister Angus Taylor's favourite technological solution to climate change, if there is such a thing, carbon capture and storage, CCS, bury your head in the sand. OK, OK, so far no one's been able to actually make it work, but let's not let that minor fact get between a bit of CO2 and a bag of profit. The brilliance of San Tosset over there's idea is to bury the CO2 as I said, let's forget the fact that no one has yet got it to work, the CO2, 10 million tonnes of it a year, out in the ocean in the near-depleted Bayanundu field. Possibly the best CCS reservoir in Trublowazi. The company looked very pleased with itself. Uh, in Trublowazi, we looked a bit bewildered. Well, more than usual bewildered. Yes, yes, the best in Trublowazi. Ah, uh, but, but the Bayanundu field is in... Timor-Leste. Uh, well, yes, technically uh, it is It uh, it is uh, in Timor-Leste, technically, but, but this would be a great boon to Timor-Leste's economy. Uh, but what if they don't agree? How can they not agree? Are you saying they are not a good neighbour to Trublubasi? Isn't it considerate that a giant world resource corporation is prepared to assist a small nation by sending it its rubbish? What an inspired, altruistic idea, and just to help, Scummo, Angus and the team plan to provide 265 mil in the budget for the development of burying your head in the sand. Much more sensible than wasting 265 mil on a solution that does not emit CO2 at all. But what if Timor-Leste proves uncooperative? We certainly hope it doesn't, that it recognises the huge benefits of copying Trubadawazi's rubbish, but what if... Where's our former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Alexander, when we need him? He could show us how to plant a bug or two in the Timor-Leste cabinet room and give Santosset over there a bit of an advantage. About 500k southeast of the site of this oh-so-generous opportunity for Timor-Leste, thanks to the goodness of Santosset over there and the and Trublawazi, lies a serious threat to Trublawazi security. Or we presume so, as Scuttle Demony's Minister for Trained Killing and being offensive Constable Peter Duffer warn us of the dangers of an evil, evil Chinese company that has leased the port of Darwin. So threatening, Scuttle Demon Peter prepared to spend millions of our hard-earned to tear up the lease. 
so this poses a serious threat to Tuvaluasi security, Scuttle them. No, well, well, not directly, but it poses a serious threat to our very, very close friend, the US of, and the Marines and fleet of train-killer destroyers and other train-killing state-of-the-art weaponry it has there to protect Tuvaluasi from any threat, uh, like China. This is not about China. It is about protecting the US of, whose generosity in providing Marines and all that protection we so cherish. Uh, does the US of trained killing weaponry happen to include nuclear-powered vessels, for instance? We asked Constable Duffer. Like you know, I can't, you know, like, comment on that, like you know, for, like, security, you know, reasons. Or oh, you have no idea. Huh? Oh, never mind. The real concern, of course, is that while Japan bombed Darwin 80 or so years ago, unless we tear up this untrue lease, if it comes to supporting the US of liberating China from China, we'll be forced to bomb Darwin ourselves. As COVID ravages India, Scuttle Them and Co said they were concerned about the thousands of true stranded there, all desperate to get back. We are very concerned, Scuttle Them looked very concerned, that they might try to get back. Uh, so, so what are you doing for them? We are doing the only thing we can do, lock them up for life and find them trillions if they break through our barriers, break the law. Is that part of the love the dear baby Jesus faith that drives your every move, your no proper papers, queue jumping, illegal boat people policy, for instance, that adopts the dear baby Jesus as our de facto big supremo? Absolutely. It is based on my love thy neighbour belief. Making that cricket commentator's accusations even more outlandish. How could anyone suggest Scuttlebem has blood on his hands? Why, look, he's gone straight to that basin and washed them, showing he's a dedicated student of the Bible. On that commentator, I have had a divine revelation that life in jail and a million-dollar fine are too good for him, that we should make an exception to our opposition to capital punishment. A lethal injection of COVID should do the trick. Just a week after a glossy magazine, speaking of COVID, so praised New South Wales Supremo Gladys Berry lot to them for putting the economy first during a little bit of COVID, declaring she saved the country, which is synonymous with the economy, by inference reflecting on the selfishness and untrubluosism of our state socialist government, for instance, putting community health ahead of the bottom line of those who really matter, the caring business class. Gladys again came out and said other states might have closed up after a new case or two, but not good, good saving the country, Gladys. If Victoria had been so patriotic last year, sure, we'd still have lots of cases and lots of death, but the dying would know they were making a contribution to what really matters. And the sensible policy would have helped the unemployment rate, helped big economic guru Josh Frydem Iceberg's crusade to ensure workers obtain good, highly paid jobs. Well, the workers who survived the COVID policy, as the dead could be replaced by the unemployed, who in turn, see, shortly the unemployment rate would be slashed, showing how the pejorative dead and the state socialist lot have no concern whatever for the unemployed. 
the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin read an article by Warren Munn Dunham Inn describing him as Indigenous leader, highlighting his claim that the proposed new curriculum, placing lots more emphasis on Aboriginal history, would, quote, create a society where people are divided by the colour of their skin. I don't know what to say. We're having, let's repeat that again, Day. Let's repeat that again. An arts-conservative Indigenous leader says teaching kids about Aboriginal history would create a society where people are divided by the colour of their skin. Gee, wouldn't we notice the difference? True, there was he people divided by the colour of their skin. I'll run a survey about the Indigenous presenters on this station and see how many view Warren as an Indigenous leader. Are there enough coconut trees to accommodate their answers? Then again, a bloke called Anthony Roberts, a senior member of Gladys's cabinet in New South Wales, described the new curriculum as neo-Marxist rubbish. So it can't be too bad. Other than too bad for Warren and Anthony. As Woolworth Trillions read the tea leaves or the wine dregs and withdrew a proposal for a wine barn in Darwin, although it has hedged its bets a bit, if we're not mixing metaphors, or even if we are, it turned out to be a disastrous decision. And if you don't believe me, just read that fine example of exemplary journalism, the Northern Territory Times front page screaming headline, Dan Shame. The Chamber of Profits is mourning the lost new jobs that would have been created. How selfish of those opponents. Josh helped out again by jobs in cleaning up the mess. Still up north, the northern Troublewazi infrastructure facility has for the first time had a federal minister step in and veto a proposed loan. As the Minister for Beautiful Coal, Keith Pitpony, vetoed a loan for a Queensland wind farm, announcing wind and solar should be funded by the private sector and not the taxpayer. Financial assistance, quote, would be inconsistent with the objectives and policies of the government. No comment needed here, I think, but Keith did show his awareness and compassion by pointing out taxpayers were already paying in other ways thanks to those objectives and policies. Interesting, right next to that article in yesterday's Troubler Wazzy Capitalist Review, the, the um, Lash Sun government will announce a $58.6 million package in the budget to help drive the gas-led recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. Wonder if the sub-editor juxtaposed them deliberately. And finally, as the fossils and the caring business class generally lobby to convince a government that doesn't need any convincing of the importance of trillions in corporate welfare in the budget, ScoMo announced the future of the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, is at stake unless costs are rein in. Little rein-ins like withdrawing services. Apparently, Scummer had another humane, caring, love thy neighbour revelation from the dear baby Jesus. Oh, just noticed our invitation to the budget lockup hasn't arrived yet. Obviously, an oversight. Good morning. Oh, lots in that today. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ah, oh, just and and that curriculum response in particular as neo-Marxist rubbish. Teachers will never escape the 
absolute, you know, hypocrisy that, you know, we're all Maoists and Leninists secretly. <laughs> Anytime we teach slightly, you know, outside of absolute conservative doctrine thought, you know, and, and just very quickly, one time I was teaching inflation to a group of year eight kids, and this was just an introduction on percentages and such. And one kid raised Venezuela as a country which had really, really high inflation. And the following day, I got a very angry email from a concerned parent who slandered me as a communist, of which I'm not, absolutely not, because I had the audacity to even talk about the existence of a country and that um, it was so politely worded, but it was this thin veneer of, you know, don't talk socialism to my kid, you know. Oh, how bizarre. You know, I was a placement teacher. So I was working there for free, you know, full time, unpaid. Wow. God. Very sensitive, Ah. aren't they? And, you know, I was just talking about this country is undergoing this rate of inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very sensitive. It's very practical. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually just exposes how how bizarre the uh, right wing conservative. Um, power grouping that uh, oh, manages the, the and world. I've, I've seen some terrible stuff from parents as well, you know, just talking to other teachers. But on that, actually, um, one thing that I, I did bring up, sorry to divert no, no, this no, off, but um, yeah. There's actually so, a reason for why we're talking about education. Oh, it? absolutely. So um, I uh, have been doing a bit of snooping around the Australian Education Union and for the Victorian branch, they're actually approaching their negotiations for the EBA, uh, which is currently ongoing and underway. And it's been so since about uh, late March or so, um, but uh, they're still ongoing and haven't quite reached a conclusion yet. Um, The Australian Education Union has said off the back of a survey of about 10,000 Victorian state teachers last year that the state's underfunded school system is driving a lot of teachers that are overworked directly out of the profession. And you can look at um, burnout rates for graduate teachers in their first five years because of that. Victoria is particularly egregious for that. Uh, Victorian state school teachers work an average of 15 hours unpaid overtime every week. Um, State school principals are found to be working a 60-hour week. Um, Vic state schools are also the lowest funded in Australia. So it's about $1,400 per student behind the national average. And um, this translates to um, a really poor work-life balance for the typical teacher, Um, 46% of those surveyed teachers said that they had a poor work-life balance. So the AEU's demands are quite extensive this time around, and they are as follows. So there's a proposed 21% pay rise over the next three years. So that's 7%. This is particularly big, and I'll come back to why that's the case in a little bit. A 16.5% rise to superannuation, a cut of face-to-face teaching hours from 18 per week, down from 22.5 in primary and 20 in secondary. So this translates to about two to three less classes per week, um, a reduction in teaching hours for teachers in their first three years. So it rather than having them just go into a full load immediately, you've got 14 per week for graduates, then 15 per week for the next year, 16 after, and then back to the proposed 18. There's also a proposal to reduce class sizes to a maximum of 20 students at all year levels. 
and currently they're at 26 at primary and 25 at secondary. Now, it's worth stressing that those are maximums. Um, very often, class sizes vary. Uh, uh, you can how see big class... the classes? Sorry. Look, it, what, what so did they want? They, they, they're going to be reduced to 20 yeah. from 26 in primary and 25 in secondary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, practically... I see those class sizes only really happen at year seven to year nine levels for secondary, 25 kids. Once you start breaching into year 10, year 11, year 12, um, education begins to stratify quite a bit and it becomes more individualized. So you see much smaller class sizes just naturally occurring. And that's very often the case in extension subjects, in specific electives, yeah, yeah, because um, it's languages. broken down. When yeah, you, when absolutely. When you get to those later classes, you actually have yeah. different yeah. subjects. So this this kind of points in two directions. On the one hand, the pay proposals are quite big. That's that's almost universally universally agreed. Um, when but the age was already from a low base. Well, so look, graduate teachers entry on about seventy two point eight k a year. Yeah. Um, at the most, a teacher can earn is $108,000 per year. So if this was a 7% increase for one year, that means a new graduate like myself would move from a pay of 72.8 to 77.9. Yeah, yeah. Um, this does notably cross that uh, cross a tax bracket, if I remember yeah, correctly. It's right. either 76 or 78, somewhere around there. It may or may not advantage you then. Potentially. Hmm. It's, okay. it's possible. Um, the, the other... One that's related to this is that 16.5% superannuation. When you factor in the superannuation change against this pay rise, it actually translates to not that much of a substantial pay increase. More is being diverted to superannuation. The The pitch from the AEU is that they can take a very high demand to the government and expect to negotiate between the margins, which I think is what will come out of this in terms of pay change. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest battle, in my opinion, though, is actually those conditions. All of those conditions that were proposed around teaching hours, um, as well as in particular that face-to-face -face teaching hour cut and the class size reduction, those are far more important battlegrounds because primarily we are seeing teachers concerned about workload. And um, not only will this reduced class size decrease that typical workload for a teacher, but should actually encourage the hiring of more staff, which for any school is a big bonus. The more teachers there yeah. are in a room working with kids, the better the education. That's so proven. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that you should say that because... Um I'm not sure that everybody realise, you know, people have hard jobs. There are people who work very gruelling jobs mm. and uh, they often, people often talk about, like to talk about teachers having an easy ride. Um, having been a teacher, I think that uh, people are really um, absurd in their understanding of what it takes to be a teacher. Mm. One, it's the perform the performance in class, mm -hmm. it's the preparation out of class, yep. and it's also the incredible level of workload that goes with correcting work yep. Yep. from Absolutely. class. Yeah, it, it, it is an absolute myth that teachers only work from nine to three, but it's still a myth that's yeah. really, really People populated. People love to play play with that idea. Yeah, and, and that teachers get paid school holidays. 
oh, yes, we do get paid school holidays, but honestly, it just becomes an office job at that point. You're either working from home or sometimes you, you go in, you're in casual dress and you, you mope around school, carrying documents, you know, organizing books, that kind of thing. Um, that, that, that's what it becomes. It becomes an office job on school holidays. Um, the only other personal reflection that I'll offer with this, because I know we've got to move on soon, um, and oh, added... actually, we don't have enough time for the next segment, so oh, you might well. as well just relax. Oh, okay. Well, fair we'll enough. We'll have to carry look, it over to next week, I'm afraid. Absolutely. Um, look, attitudes about what education is capable of have changed in the last 20 years. And this is mostly around the advancement of what's called differentiation theory. Um, good education has been found that... If you treat education like medicine, where it's highly individual, highly personalized, and you're going to get great results, the view that some people aren't cut out for book learning or aren't good at any particular subject, all of that has actually largely gone in terms of professional education. A lot of people in society still hold that view, and it's a very legitimate view. But professionally, there is now this attitude that anything can be taught to anyone under the right conditions. Consequently... This is great for education, also, but the uh, onus uh, goes back onto the teacher because now if you can teach every student, you should teach every student. Well, actually, the thing about it is, is well, perhaps that truism is uh, will f- find its own uh, grave at some stage because mm. each of these ideas generally do. But uh, it does strike me that everybody is uh, running their own race. Every student is running their own race. Absolutely. So whatever it is that a person actually learns and at whatever pace they're learning at is really the key, mm. isn't it? Yeah. And I think especially homeschooling, that that was actually seen by a lot of parents. A lot of parents actually got to see how their kid learns or even just how their kid acts in a schooling environment. Um, yeah, I, people I, were really, people yeah, really realised really how much teacher, teachers actually did. Yep, yep. And especially because yeah, school, in, in a big, broad sense, is daycare on some level, you know, it, it is that... Well, that's that, why it was instituted, so that people could course. go to work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and Oh, and also, I presume, to train children into their proper role as future workers. Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> the school, so much of school runs on an industrial model. You know, there, there's this concept where you go in a child and you come out um, ready to go into the work, well, the workforce. You're, you're an adult, you know, a man, a woman, a hard worker of some sort. You know, you have all the skills that you need to, to, to live. That's the expectation. But that's a really industrial model, you know. It, you go into this factory where you go from year one to year two to year three, and it's not consequence to your age. It's just a literal biological, you know, reflection. Well, you know, the most fantastic thing about all that is that they taught people to be literate because it was going to be a productivity gain, Mm. right? So that they could actually read labels and do safety procedures and not cost cost them um, money when their bodies got crushed in the machines, Mm. that type of stuff. Um, so, uh, but of course what it did was open the door to, um, ideas and being able to read and probably the most fantastic piece of working class history is the mechanics institutes and you'll find mechanics institutes right across every Mm. country town of Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, and now they're in, in, 
you know, in the city, they're all converted into mm-hmm. other things. But these were the working person's library, um, giving people access to stuff that they would not normally be considered to be um, have available to them because yeah. they were workers, it, merely. It, it bridged the divide between unskilled and skilled workers, of which that was the that was the big class division back, you know, through the 40s, 50s and 60s in particular. You, That's right. You, you, you were either, you know, a labourer or you had been to uni and you have skills and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I went yeah. to a speech um, given by an uh, important uh, leader of the MUA uh, a number of years ago and he was talking about um, how, as a young man, and he was a leader in um, many actions that related to things like in uh, Indonesia, free free Indonesia, when it was the, I mean, because he was an elderly man. Mm. Um, but he got his education, he said, by reading in the library that they had at the um, on the ships that he was in. Yeah, okay. and that yep. um, that's where he became a communist. Thank you very much. How how dare you uh, teach people to read? How dare you be a good maths teacher, man? Yeah, I know. (laughs) So we can understand quantitatively easing or that uh, Venezuela is being crippled by a uh, US state. It all comes full circle now. (laughs) All all, all teaching is inherently communist. Don't even get me started on the Safe Schools Coalition. That's a whole (laughs) other kettle of fish, you know. Um, So, yes, look, I'll, I'll keep an eye on this with the Australian Education Union. I'm at least hoping that we can get, you know, a 3 or 4% pay rise, as those have been similarly negotiated in the RTBU from memory, as well as the nursing union. And teaching has always had a very strong unionist record. Um, you know, Victorian teachers are not afraid to go out on strike. We will do it. So absolute solidarity to the AEU. Should we wrap up Solidarity Breakfast for this week? Yeah, that's right. And you'll, you will be here next week. Absolutely, yes. Great. Absolutely. And then from there, we'll just see how things go. We're, we yeah. will. And coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Asia Currents. Currents. Mm. See you next week, folks. Oh, yeah.
3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of... There's a cold rain on the autumn wind A brother murdered in Sydney town Mark for brother on his supposed eagle covering his home He gunned him down He say, oh, 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 Gunned him down Sad rivers of tears Two hundred years in the river of fear Gunned him down They took him out of point blank range in his home with his small young son. Shot him dead in his marble bed with a pump action 12 gauge shotgun. Fatherless child, even wife, a black fugitive on the run. On the run, two centuries from oppression's loaded guns. We say, oh, whoa, oh, oh, Gunned him down. Sad rivers of tears, 200 years. Terrorists dressed in uniform under the protection of their law. Terrorized blacks and dawns of fear that come smashing through your door. You're not safe outside on Freedom Street, you're not safe inside the camp. There's shotguns and there's stun guys, the license to drop you where you stand. We say, whoa, whoa. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.